0: so proud of all of my students. They did a great job this morning. You did a really good job. I would be remiss if I didn't take this opportunity to say, this is your opportunity to uh, be part of their stories. We'd love for you to volunteer in youth ministry. If that's something you're interested in, come and chat with me. I'd love to chat with you about that this morning. And yes, I want to echo what Liliana said. Rock the Block is going to be awesome. It's the biggest party of the year. And it's going to happen right here next Sunday night. And so um, just be praying for lots of students that they'd show up. Um, if, you, if you know a teen or you are a teen and, and you know some other friends who are, need to be here at Rock the Block, we actually, out on the information table, there's some invite cards that you can just hand to people. They're designed specifically to invite them to Rock the Block. Grab as many as you can and uh, get, get some students here. We'd love to party with Jesus with them. Well, Before we jump into the message, would you just go ahead and join me in prayer? Uh, It would be pointless for me to be talking if God was not blessing what I was saying and not speaking through me because it's not any person you came to hear this morning, it's God you came to hear. So would you join me in seeking him this morning? Jesus, we pray this morning that as we dive into your word, the word of God, the the word of God that spoke life, we pray that you would speak life into our hearts this morning, that you would be... um, Blessing these feeble lips of this preacher, Lord, that you would um, uh, inspire the words that come out of my mouth, that they would be coming from your heart, and I pray that they would speak to each one of our hearts this morning. Amen. I want to start with a question. How many of you have had a birthday within the last 12 months? Okay, I saw some not hand raises. You guys are supposed to be Baptists. I'm just kidding. Um, uh, So... How many of you, you don't have to raise your hands for this one, how many of you ever received a gift like this, and when you got it, you began to realize that maybe it came with some strings attached, right? You got a gift, and then you began to leave, and you realize, oh my word, there's a string attached. Maybe not a literal string attached, that'd be weird, um, but maybe it was a metaphorical string attached. Maybe you've received a gift before that feels like it came with strings attached. Right? Like, or maybe, for example, you went to help somebody move or someone came to help you move large furniture, the whole deal, double-decker stairs, like everything, moving truck. And as they leave after helping you move, you're thinking to yourself, man, I owe them big time. Or maybe you were the person who went to someone else's house to help them move, and you're driving away afterwards kind of smugly thinking, they owe me big time. Right? Sometimes we are in Situations that feel like they have strings attached to them. Have you ever been in a relationship that felt like it was characterized by having strings attached? Uh, like, like, if you, then they will, but not before. Uh, and, and so there's always this, this condition attached to the relationship that you feel like you're in. Maybe it's a boss at work. Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's a friend or a group of friends. And, and maybe... Even further than that, maybe you feel like that's true of your experience when it comes to God and when it comes to church. Maybe you were taught growing up that if you miss church, there's like this strike against you with God. If you skip church on a Sunday, or maybe you were taught that if you leave the church, like your relationship with God is basically over or, or maybe you, your entire church experience growing up seemed like a bunch of rules to follow, and so you maybe developed this idea about God that He was a conditional God. You heard that you've got to obey the commandments in order for Him to love you. you. You read somewhere in the Old Testament that He used to strike down people with lightning, and so anytime you hear a swear word, you just move a couple seats to the side. Or... or You have to perform in order to stay in line, right, so that God might bless you, but if you disobey or if you rebel or if you sin, it's over. You've got to start over from the beginning. And so any imperfection that we experience is filtered through this lens of, I must not be worthy. I must have to to earn my way back to God. I, I grew up and I went to this little church that had these beautiful stained glass windows, and... One of the stained glass windows was this, this image of Jesus with some sheep in a meadow, and I couldn't really find it, so this is, this is the closest I could find to it. But one of the things I remember about that stained glass window is it reminded me, at least the picture of Jesus did, it reminded me a lot of the Mona Lisa. Like anywhere that I would go in the sanctuary, he was still looking at me. I just saw some of you test that out. <laughs> And I remember in middle school, I would show up, and I was a bully. I was really mean in middle school, and I'd feel the sense of guilt when I'd come to this church, or it was in high school struggling with an addiction, and, and I'd sit down, and I'd pick a different seat some Sundays, and I'm like, he's still looking. He knows. And, and I had this idea that, man, God must be conditional. God, God must be judging me based on my performance. And, and I want to ask you the question this morning. What if it wasn't that way at all? What if, what if God's love... And his grace was truly unconditional. In the text of Scripture that we're going to examine this morning in Luke chapter 15, that's exactly the situation that Jesus finds himself in. He dresses this very tension that the contemporary teachers of Scripture, the, the scribes and the Pharisees, they had completely messed this idea up in the way that they had been teaching people about God. And so when Jesus, who's claiming to be the Son of God, shows up and starts hanging out with some really bad and seedy and sordid people, they begin to really question whether or not Jesus was serious, whether or not he was actually from God, if, if he's making these associations that they spent their entire lives trying to avoid, trying to, to live above. And so if you have your Bibles, turn with me, like I said, to Luke chapter 15. We're going to start right away in verses 1 and in verses 2. If you are able, would you go ahead and stand on up and we're going to read this out loud. Luke chapter 15, verses One and two, this really sets up the scene. It says, now the tax collectors and the sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. You were really sanctified if you did the voice with me. I'm just kidding. Um, Would you guys join me in prayer? Jesus, I pray again as, as we dive into your word that you would speak to us, speak to our hearts, and that we wouldn't listen for somebody next to us, that we'd listen for ourselves to hear what you have to say to us this morning. Amen. You can be seated. I remember the first time I read this thinking, man, isn't that what's supposed to happen? Like, isn't that the mission of Jesus? You know everything I learned from the Bible, like that's kind of the ideal of what. Well, why are they complaining? Why are they grumbling about what's going on? And I think to understand this, we have to understand a little bit about who these people were. First of all, the Pharisees and their scribes—they were—they were the um, the guardians of the purity of Jewish culture of everything that God had handed down to them in the Old Testament, in the law, and they were the guardians of this, right? And and there was multiple passages, multiple understandings in the Old. Understandings in the Old Testament that gave Jewish people the understanding that you're not supposed to associate with Jewish people or with uh, with sinners, with unbelievers, with Gentiles. Take Psalm one for example. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the way of sinners. And so everything about what they would teach stemmed from something pure and something true that was handed to them from God. And then they would take this far beyond the biblical intent and begin to elevate their own pride and elevate their own status at the expense of the religious experience of other people. And these tax collectors, in short, they were basically sellouts to the uh, pagan Roman culture. Uh, The sinners, basically by temple law, were forbidden from associating with things that were pure and holy until they had atoned with a sacrifice, until they had purified themselves. And so these people were essentially outcasts in a very spiritual uh, but godless environment. Like everything that the Pharisees were do, was doing had a good intention behind it. We want to draw people closer to God, except what they wound up doing over years and years and years of unchecked power was they wound up keeping people from God with all this enormous amount of rules and religiosity. And so when Jesus shows up and starts associating with the people that they try so very hard to keep out of their presence, they begin to go, wait a second, what is going on here? And so in response to this, this this is a criticism, this man receives sinners and he eats with them. And yes, it's an accurate and it's a beautifully ironic, but it's a very callous criticism of Jesus. And so in response to this criticism, Jesus proceeds to tell three parables, three illustrative stories to illustrate a point. In the first two parables, there's a parable about a lost sheep, there's a parable about a lost coin, and basically they say the exact same thing right at the end. There is much joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. Right? So Jesus tells a story about this lost sheep. He says in the same way, there's much more joy over the one sinner who comes home than the 99 who were never lost. Right? And then he says this parable about a lost coin. He says there's much joy in heaven over one sinner who repents, just like finding this lost coin. And he goes on to tell a third story, which is where we're going to pick up in the text, verse 11. Luke chapter 15, verse 11. And many have called this the parable of the prodigal son, I think probably more appropriately, you could probably call it the parable of the two sons because Jesus begins to illustrate a very specific point using the interplay between a father and his two sons. Chapter 15, verse 11, he said, And there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that's divided to me. And he divided his property, and he went and spent he divided his property between them, and, and we understand later on, he goes and, and he wastes it all. Before I get into that really quick, I want to highlight the, 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 the crisis that happens here in the story, because I think sometimes what we think is, we read the parable of the prodigal son or the two sons, and we think, oh man, the crisis, the bad thing that should have been avoided here is how the son left, or, or what he left to go do. And as Jesus begins to tell the story, I think it becomes clear that that's not actually the crisis in the story here. The crisis is actually the pain that the father experiences. The crisis is the cut, the intensity of the heart who was cut to the core by a son who spurned his generous and unconditional love. The son who says to his father, essentially, I want my inheritance now, and you're taking too long to die for me to get it. So, can you just give it to me now? Because I'd really, really prefer to go do my own thing than stay here with you, Dad. And, and so he takes his inheritance, and 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 as we learn later on from the abundance of joy that the father experiences, this moment must have hurt so deeply. And maybe some of you parents in the room have felt that before. This this, this pain that the father experiences is intense. And, and the irony is this, that before the father, the son never had to do that. The, the son was totally worthy. He was entirely desired. He was completely secure. But, but the boy simply saw everything that he couldn't have, thinking that the father was holding him back on so much living, on so much Fun, on so much excitement. I mean, he had a serious case of FOMO, fear of missing out. Like I'm I'm gonna miss my life because I'm here with you, Dad. And ironically, later on, he begins to realize how much he's actually missing out on being gone from his dad. So Jesus continues on, verse 13. Not many days later, the younger son gathers all he had and he took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property. With reckless living, or if you are reading the NIV, he he, he squandered his wealth with wild living. I love that. And, and the famine makes his job, his life so hard that he finally breaks down and does the unthinkable for a Jewish boy to do: go work with pigs, one of the most unclean things you could touch. It was repulsive, and not only that, Jesus relays it gets so bad. It gets so bad that he he realizes, man, I'm so hungry. I just, I don't even have enough money to buy my own food after work. I can't go home to my sweet crib. I got kicked out. I've got no place to live. I'm just so hungry. I would really just prefer to eat the food that the pigs are eating. I mean, that takes a lot of hunger. I'll just say that much. That takes a lot of hunger for that to look like a happy meal. And, and so he gets so hungry and no one gives him anything. Verse 16, he was longing to be fed with the pods of the pig ate and no one gave him anything. I mean, he had fallen so low that he became so insignificant, even on a pig farm, that he was totally neglected. He was given less attention than the pigs were. And I think this is what sin does to us, right? It makes these grand promises of fame and fortune, or, or pleasure and satisfaction and excitement, security. But in the end, it always, without fail, leaves us hungry and empty. It's a lot like eating just disgusting junk food. I mean, it looks good right away, but it doesn't nourish us, when at the exact same time, a delicious and healthy and an overflowing meal has always been available to us. I love, actually, the way that C.S. Lewis said it. He preached a sermon called The Weight of Glory, and in this sermon, he said this, it's just a beautiful picture of this. He said, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the gospel, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong. Right? Like We look at some people who are, who are living lives of sin, who are going into wild living like the text says. And we're like, man, their desires are way too strong. Like, you need to curb your desire, man. You need to check your heart, man. You need, to, you need to pull back because your desires are too strong. And I think C.S. Lewis is saying, he's like, nah, I don't think that's the issue. The Lord finds our desires too weak. We're half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Our desire for sin reveals a very weak desire, not a very strong desire. But just like the grace of God, there's a glimmer of hope that begins to arise. Verse 17, when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? And it's almost like, in the text, some some translations say, but he came to his senses. It's almost like there's something like sense beginning to rattle around in his brain again. Sin has kind of, the the grandeur and the temptation of sin has begun to fade away. He's beginning to see what actually was delivered by the grand promises of sin. And sense is beginning to come back to him. And I love how the ESV says that he came to himself. And I think that's probably a little bit more of a literal translation of the original language. And it's almost like what happens here is he had gone so far. He, he had run so hard after so many things. He had gone so low. He had hit rock bottom that he... Almost like abandoned himself in everything that he was made for. And the grace of God is now beginning to bring him back to himself, who he was made to be and what he was made to do. And he returns to his senses. He, he picks himself up. He puts one foot in front of another on the long road home. And, and it's almost like the soundtrack here, if this were a movie, the soundtrack would be playing in a minor key, but the tempo would begin to pick up with some chimes in the background. Right? It's like melancholy, but there's a glimmer of hope beginning to arise as he begins to stand up and orient his direction back home to his father. So we pick up in the text again, verse 20. And he arose and came to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. And it's almost, Jesus begins to pan out in this scene. And this is an important scene. Jesus begins to pan out and begin to see both sides of what's happening here. You see the father, you see the son. The, the author is giving you a little insight into the experience, the internal experience of both the father and the son. And it's almost like it's in slow motion. They begin to run towards each other. And, and the son is like beginning to go, oh no, I see my, is that, he's, is that my father? He's beginning to run towards him. And the father's just like, psh, 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 psh. yes, and he just takes off. He's so excited and he begins to run towards his son and he felt compassion into inside, and he ran, and he embraced him, and he kissed him. He kissed him profusely, the text says. The word is kataphileo in Greek, and it really it just means like an overwhelming kiss, 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 like I do with the first time I see my kids after I've been gone for a week, right? Like it's just like, okay, God, stop it. This is annoying. All my friends are watching. This is embarrassing. Like it's that kind of a kiss. And he's so excited, and he begins to take off and notice the posture of the father here. It's a total lack of dignity. It's a total disregard for cultural norms. I mean, this is a wealthy and respected and honorable man. He doesn't need to run. He doesn't need to work hard. He doesn't need to sweat. He doesn't even need to walk fast. Like, he is a, he's the man of the house. He's a wealthy man. Everybody else does that for him. And there's this sense of dignity that is just disregarded as he... Hikes up his robe. You ever tried to run in a dress before? He hikes up his robe. Uh, I love how the the King James Version will say, girdeth up his loins. And he just takes off, and he's just like, his heart is beating so fast. uh, All he sees, tunnel vision, is his son is returning home. There's this excitement in his heart. And at the same time, Jesus begins to tell about the son's experience. All of a sudden, he sees dad running to him. He's like, oh, no, oh, no, oh, no, oh, no. Right? Sin says, I did something bad. i got to run away from my dad. Love says, I did something bad. i got to run to my dad. And, and, and he's beginning to feel this sense of shame inside of him. Shame is beginning to say, hey, man, this is all you did. You did this. You did this. You did this. You did something bad. Therefore, you must be something bad. And so he's coming up with all these excuses, I'm not worthy to be called your son. Just treat me like one of your servants. Like I don't even shouldn't even be living in your house. he's, He's beginning to disqualify himself from everything that he has been blessed with in his father's name. He begins to disqualify himself as a son. He begins to disqualify his place in the house. He begins to disqualify everything that he was born and raised to do. The the enemy will often try to convince you through the lying tongue of shame to voluntarily forfeit the confidence and the authority and security that has been bestowed upon you by God himself. And maybe for some of you he's already done that, or he's in the process of doing that. Using shame, things that you did in the past, and saying untrue things about you, therefore you must be something bad. And as a result, you should just forfeit all of these things that, that Jesus Christ died and paid for you for. Shame, it's shame, it's shame that's going to be the thing in this passage that's trying to get the Son to, to walk away from the father's house and not come back. Ironically, it's the exact opposite, unconditional love that will defeat shame every time, every time. Jesus continues, verse 22. What the father said to his servant, and basically cut him off right in the middle. He didn't even let him finish. He said to his servant, no, 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 bring the best robe, put it on him, bring a ring on his hand, put shoes on his feet, hire the best DJ, kill the fatted calf, and let's celebrate, right? Like, let's party. <laughs> and like, they start throwing down like neon lights, uh, DJ, right? There's like sprinklers in the air, um, There's sparklers, I mean, sparklers in the air, and (laughs) sprinklers, (laughs) put a damper on that party, Um, right, it's like confetti everywhere, and just like, it's like the house is beginning to shake, right, it's like, and, and then Jesus begins to take this scene, and he cuts the scene right there, and takes us, and shows us a different camera angle, the next verse is verse 25, Now, his older son was in the field, and he came and drew near to the house, and he heard music and dancing. Turned down for what? Like, he just sees the house, and he's like, what is going on over there? And so he calls a servant, and the servant says, yeah, your brother just came home, your father killed the fatted calf, and because he received him back, safe and sound. And the older brother was angry. He refused to even go near the house. And, and it's, it's abundantly clear, as Jesus is telling this parable, the Pharisees are beginning to go, wait a second, I know who he's talking about right now. I, I, I wait a second, you ever heard someone tell a story about you, they're like, I don't think that's really true, I don't like that it's that true, right? Someone uses a voice, they're like, maybe, maybe, like to use your voice, and you're like, I don't sound like, well, I guess maybe when I complain, I do sound like that. Um, and, and so the Pharisees are beginning to go, wait a second, that's, that's, That's about us. I want to take a moment to observe the heart condition of the brother here. Because it's super important. This is Jesus slows down everything. He causes causes a huge cut right in the high point of the story so that this point can be made. I think it's safe to assume that the brother had a very low view of of his younger brother and his moral standards. And he's very disapproving and and disappointed with his father's grand show. He says to his father, verse 29, Look, these many years I served you. I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, he's not even saying my brother. He's not even saying, he's like, no, no, it's your son. How many of your parents ever did, like, your child is doing this right now? You know what I mean? Uh, you said that to your spouse. like He's like, this son of yours, he comes home after, mind you, let I remind you, dad, spending all your money with prostitutes. And you're throwing a party? You never even gave me a tiny party. There's a heart condition being revealed in the son right now. And in my sanctified imagination, I just imagine the moment earlier with this kind of a heart condition when the the younger brother left earlier, there's almost this this mindset in the older brother that says, like, finally, he's now going to see what the real world is like. He's going to get what's been coming. It's about time he wakes up and tries harder. Be better. Get his stuff together. I hope life hits him so hard that he finally realizes he needs to pick himself up for for himself for once. Maybe then he'll finally stop being an embarrassment to our family, to our father, to himself, to me. Maybe then his life will finally look good and make me feel good. And the older brother is completely unaware of the unearned blessing and position that he is currently standing in. That even enables him to say something like that. So... so as the younger brother's leaving, he's happily seeing his brother off and hopes that his brother's imminent failure will be the cause for his own moral growth and personal success. Like, there's this heart condition that hopes the younger brother biffs it and realizes, You need to fix your own life, dude. I hope you fall in the dirt so that you realize you need to do something for yourself for once. Jesus concludes his parable with this. Verse 31, the father said to him, son, 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 it's not like that at all. You're always with me. Everything, you you see that party I just threw? That's always been available to you. It is fitting to celebrate and be glad. It is okay. Because this, your brother was dead and he's alive and he was lost and now he's found. And it's like Jesus is saying, there should be joy There should be joy in each one of you, everyone hearing Jesus' words, over one sinner who repents. And from this parable, believers for thousands of years have understood that joy should affect them deeply because of God's unearned, life-giving, sinner-finding grace that, that it transforms my life. And I should find joy every time I experience it, even when somebody else experiences it. In other words, there should be joy on my face when a sinner gets grace, even if it's not me. Right? There should be joy on my face, in my heart, in my revealed actions, cause for celebration. There should be joy in my experience every time someone gets grace, even if it's you. It should affect me so deeply that it moves me into the visible action of celebration. So from this text this morning, I want to make a couple observations as we close, three observations. The first one is I want to just point you to notice a very powerful posture of grace and and the the, the contrast that Jesus makes between the, the graceful posture of the Father and the judgmental, Grace absent posture of the older brother. Remember, this entire parable points towards this specific scene where Jesus gives this dramatic, slow motion, bird's eye view as it's beginning to unfold. The camera angle of of the father approaching the son and then panning off to that side scene of the brother upset that there's a party going on at home. And I, I don't want you to miss this. In expressing his joy over his son, the father is unnecessarily lavish and liberal. He's over the top. He doesn't have to be that crazy, but he goes insane in accordance to the amount of joy that's in his heart. But if the main crisis of the story was the pain that the father felt when the son left, the pain that, that God feels when a sinner is living off in sin, then the main resolution to this parable is the joy that the Father feels when the sinner comes home. And so he's unnecessarily liberal and lavish in how he expresses his joy. He, he throws a party that's unbelievably expensive, especially considering how the son had done so many things wrong. And he had just barely returned home. He invested no time at all in repairing the relational damage that he had done, inflicted, or righting the wrongs that he had done. Like, his love for his son apparently knows no limits. And his joy overflows that this rebellious son has finally come home. His heart is pounding in his chest. He has no regard for dignity. He's elated. He's ecstatic. His son is home. And then Jesus at this moment brings a very major contrast. At the exact same time that the father is rejoicing, the older brother is angry. Why? Anger is very natural when there is no grace in the heart of someone who sees somebody else get grace. Why? Because you're comparing yourself. You feel like, oh man, now I'm being threatened. Oh man, now this person is, like, uh, do I stand here? Like, how is this going to work out? Do I have the same amount of standing? What are people thinking about me? Like, and you begin to be questioning, you begin to be scared of like, how things are going to play out for your own life and you're like r- running the worry game in your head and you're, you're trying to channel every way that you could possibly make yourself look good and you're upset that somebody else would get that instead of you. Anger is very natural in the heart. Of someone who has no grace when they see someone else get grace. So his brother, he's angry. He never got the celebration for not messing up his life like his younger brother. And Jesus begins to say he's so oblivious. He doesn't see the unlimited access he's always had to everything the father owns. Isn't the way some of us operate, whether it's consciously or subconsciously, so often in our pride we think that, man, we got to hold the law or or the the real world over somebody else. And that's going to be the thing that finally gives them the breakthrough that we want them to have. And the satisfaction of achieving a higher ground, like entirely oblivious of the overwhelming and unearned grace that we're currently standing in, that even enables us to say something like that. Are we entirely overlooking the grace of God that brought us to this point? How hypocritical this brother is in his smug and self-righteous judgment of his visibly imperfect brother. My prayer for each one of us has been that we be given the grace to put this attitude to death in our own hearts. For the glory of God's grace and for the preservation of our own testimonies, And I'm reminded, though, as I'm reading this, that like this account of the older brother, there's always going to be people who challenge the free grace of God towards those who don't deserve it, to those who abuse it and still get it. And so instead of judging the grace giver or the grace receiver, Jesus Jesus seems to be saying, man, you need to be offering the same heaven-inspired grace that the Father gave that looks past the past and sees the Son who was found. It me my second observation is that you are worthy of God's love. You, you are worthy of God's love. First of all, the father, he doesn't, he doesn't run after the sinner when he leaves, but when he comes home. Secondly, the thing I see is that you're worthy of God's love. And I, I, I didn't visibly see it, but I kind of felt it some of you guys bristled up for a moment. And I only know that because I did that the first time God said that to me. Like, no, I'm not worthy. No, I'm not. No, I'm not. Has the blood of Jesus been paid over your life? Has God's righteousness been imputed to you because of Jesus? Has your sin account been paid in full? Then yes, you are. You've been made worthy. You're worthy of God's love. But if we truly choose to believe what God says... We have to arrive at this inescapable conclusion that God has made a value statement about who you are. You're worthy of his love simply because of your place in his family. And regardless of your achievement or moral standing or lack thereof, like despite the depth of the sin against his father, there's no grudge from the father except willing reception when he comes home. But I think so many of us, we hold on to that. We hold on to the hurt from being unworthy of the love that we, of the one that we just hurt. We say with the son, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And yet the father restores him completely to his full status immediately. So, so why is it so hard for us to truly experience the love of God? I think perhaps for many of us, it's inconceivable that we're worthy of being loved like that. We hold on to so many hurts within us that we think ourselves unlovable. And we think that before we can be loved, we need to be better people. We need to clean ourselves up, pull ourselves higher before we can be worthy. And God loves us just the way that we are. And frankly, you stand no chance of pulling yourself higher. You can't do that on your own. Only God can do that in you. He loves you just as you are, and he loves you too much to keep you that way. But it's not going to be your own efforts that get you anywhere further. You are worthy of being loved, and I think that's the place where we need to start. I think that's the spot that we need to accept and start with, and it's the basis for healing within ourselves. We all sin against God, but he doesn't stop loving us for a second because of it. And like I said, the enemy is going to try to convince you through the, the, the deception of shame, to voluntarily forfeit everything that Jesus won for you. Don't let him do that. You are worthy of God's love. And the final thing I want to mention is that you stand in the space of grace. You stand currently, no matter what went down this morning or last night or this last week, you are standing in grace. You currently stand in the space of grace. You don't have to climb up higher, hold on longer, or try harder. Just stand in the space that you've been granted access to. I love how, how Paul says it in Romans chapter 5, verse 2. He says, through Jesus, we've obtained access by faith into this grace that we stand in. And not only that, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. When you begin to stand in grace fear is dispelled. When you begin to stand in grace, shame is dispelled. When you begin to stand in the grace that God has paid for for you, everything that's holding you back from the full and unconditional experience of God's love, that begins to get dispelled in your life. You can stand in grace and have joy even though you're not perfect. You can have joy even though life doesn't always play out for you. You can have joy because God is for you. His love is in you. He's moving in your life and going ahead of you. And the Holy Spirit and the Son of God is praying for you 24-7. Like you can stand in the space of grace because it's been paid for for you. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to climb higher to get to it. You stand in the space of grace. And no longer does the lying tongue of shame have to convince you to forfeit everything that Jesus won for you. And when you do that, when you stand in that space of grace, it will cause you to celebrate even when somebody else is brought into the same space of grace. That is the grace impact. There can be joy on my face when a sinner gets grace, even if it's not me. And I I feel in my spirit that the Lord wanted me to give you an opportunity to respond to this. Like maybe some of you this morning are thinking, Pastor Brant, the Lord's been speaking to me in my heart and maybe what you just said confirmed it. I I need to experience that grace for myself. I I need to stand in that space of grace myself. I don't know if I've ever been brought into that. I don't know if the blood of Jesus has ever been applied to my sin record. I, I don't know if God's righteousness has ever been granted to me. I don't know if I can call myself a son when it comes to God's family. And if that's you, I want to pray for you. Would you guys go ahead and bow your head and close your eyes with me? And, and this morning, just for a moment, I want to give you an opportunity to respond. I'm not going to call it, ask you to stand up or say something out loud. Um, but maybe for you, today is the first day that you begin to realize, wow, I need to stand up. And I need to begin to put one foot in front of another on the road home. I need to begin to repent of the sin that I'm living in. Whether for the first time or the... 1,032nd time and I begin to walk towards the Father whose arms are open wide. If that's you, I just want to pray for you. No one's looking around. Everyone's head is bowed and everyone's eyes are closed. If that's you and you said I need to start walking back home to the Father, would you just slip up your hand? I want to pray for you. That's all I want to do. I just want to pray over you. And maybe for some of you, you're like, man, I've never done that in my life. I'd love to chat with you about that. Some of the pastors here would love to talk with you about what it means to be in a living, walking, everyday relationship with Jesus. But I want to pray over you. Jesus, I pray for each person whose hand just went up, who's maybe in their heart. They realize they need to begin to stop living in the life of sin and and, and stop believing the lies of the pleasures of sin and start walking one foot in front of another every single day towards the loving arms of the Father. I pray, Lord, that you would help us, that you would give us the grace to move back towards your unconditional love and not to forfeit the confidence and the authority that has been won for us by Jesus. I pray that we would hold tight to the truth of God's word. Lord, we thank you so much for moving and speaking to us.